Don't worry. Don't worry. Not a lamentation. I just thought we'd get some mood lighting going on. You'll notice the red lights aren't up. Phyllis Strong puts in her final inclusion, and near as I can tell, and I wasn't able to track this down exactly, but near as I can tell, this is her final contribution to the show in general, not just as a writer, but in any capacity. And she puts in a strong showing. Great way to end your your uh, your stint. This also is done by James Conway, director, who does good stuff as usual. I want you to notice something. Remember how I talked about how, you know, in the last episode, you know, you have to live with the consequences. Well, in this episode, we see the attack just sort of stops. I've heard from a few people that they think that's cheap. Because, oh, sure, now you can just slowly repair yourself back up to something. I don't agree, personally. But if anybody thinks that, do you mind sharing your thoughts on why you think that way? See, for me, this kind of lines up. They managed to call off the attack. Oh, just in time, really, and only by pulling what is effectively a political fiat, by having the, uh, well, two of the five council members override one of the five council representatives in order to try and pull temporary rank until we can settle this. It's not like they've actually done much specifically, they've just done a few things in general. There's also some other shenanigans going on there. We'll get to that in a minute. But the point is, this is not what you'd call a victory, and Enterprise is crippled. Even after interacting with the luckiest of lucky shots, they really get lucky a lot in the Expanse, don't they? They barely have the ability to go warp 3.2. And even that was at great cost. And, while we're on the subject, I want you to pay attention for the next several episodes. I believe asterisk that and this is from memory but i believe until the episode home which is in season four there will continuously be repairs and you know welding and just stuff going on in the background usually with the extras showing that they are continuing to repair the ship bit by bit from the damage they took from the previous episode which again is just just shows the the contrast of voyager you know what i mean anyways so the attack stops they have no warp they have no impulse. They have no thrusters. Have fun! Oh, that's got to be terrifying. Meanwhile, the reptilians continue to push back against the arboreals and the primates. Notice what's interesting about this. Dolem actually tries... Let me let me t- pause for a moment. I know I said I wasn't going to give individual praise for each of the guest star actors, but i got to mention uh, Scott McDonald, who plays Dolem. He's played quite a few other roles, just like all the other major recurring characters. I already mentioned that. But he does a good job here as Dolem. According to the actor, he had this mentality walking into it that he wasn't evil, which is hysterical to me, but instead that he was a bit extremist. That his whole stint was that he was willing to do the harsh and the military stuff when nobody else was, and that's how he tried to portray his character. He was the monster they brought out to deal with their problems. That kind of mentality. And if you kind of start to see that a little bit, Again, it's interesting how he does actually acquiesce to the request here, and even tries to compromise with them, which we get the impression of, and have seen before, that's how the council's already operated. Here's the interesting catch. The arboreals and primates do not accept his compromise. It's based on the way this is shown, based on the way he reacts to this, this might be one of the first times that kind of a compromise has not been accepted. Usually they have to find some kind of common ground despite their differences, but this time, nope. 
And that clearly bothers Dolem and is probably the first step in you know, what's going to lead to his decisions going forwards. Now, you might think, why don't they accept his compromise? Well, because he's already proven that his word doesn't mean much. Remember, he damaged his own argument. He improved Archer's argument back in the last episode. And now we're seeing the consequences of that. We also find out the Aquatics, who have been kind of the third neutral in-between party this whole season, are going to be called in to transport Archer. I'll come back to that in just a moment. We find out that five people are confirmed dead, a dozen or so wounded, the hull is cracking, whole swaths of it are in decompression, and, uh, yeah, the ship's not doing super great. Also, a very minor touch, credit to continuity, plus to continuity. At one point, uh, when Archer is asking for an update later on in the episode, they mention that there are three unaccounted for. If you paid attention in the previous episode, there's a shot where the hull gets blasted, and three people go flying out into space. Little tidbits like that are just joy to me. I don't even know how to explain it. I really don't. That kind of... I hate to overuse this word. That kind of continuity. That's what really drags me into fiction, right there. Seeing those kind of events, seeing those tiny little tidbits that make me believe I'm actually watching a story or get invested in it because it follows its own rules and is self-contiguous. This is pretty much the diametric opposite of Voyager. Now, I like Voyager, but I like Voyager on an episode-to-episode basis. Individual episodes are great and in many ways superior to Enterprise. But as this trilogy is showing, the strength of this kind of approach is these kind of little moments. Pardon me. Please forgive me. It's been a bit of a sneezy morning. You know how that is. Mm. Might have another one in a minute. So these little moments, I, I can't explain it. I really can't. It adds to my enjoyment. It uplifts my enjoyment. Over on my reviews, my video game stuff that I do on the stream, I have a positive I tend to give to story, usually, which is called inter- uh, good usage of internal continuity. In other words, the, the story references itself and acknowledges its own events, which adds to the enjoyment of the work, which is the core definition of a positive. And I just wanted to comment on that because that is this in spades. This trilogy, I I don't want to jump the gun on this, but I'm willing to say this trilogy is why I love season three so damn much. Having now gone through two-thirds of it, I, I can say that more definitively. This is what I've been waiting for this whole damn time. Right, by the way, just just this whole of season three, it's been like, this. this is it? This is season three? And then we hit Azadi Prime, and it's like, yes! Anyways, sorry. Moving on. So, we find out that she is reassigning repairs to E-Deck. That's interesting. Reed questions it, but she gives a relatively reasonable response, and so he just kind of lets it go. One moment again, please. There's a subtle little bit where they mention that uh, it's not exactly safe to be in engineering. We've already lost one captain today. It's a nice little tidbit, because what they're saying is, get out. (laughs) But they're doing it in a rather polite way. Nice little touch. So Archer comes back to the ship. Now, I don't want to say that's a mistake, but it's probably the biggest, the closest thing I have to a nitpick in the whole episode. (sighs) 
I'll kind of try to discuss why as we go forward. But instead of actually having the camera bouncing between Archer with the rest and, you know, with, with Dagra and crew and jumping over to Enterprise and, you know, to Paul and Tucker's story, instead we seem the need to grab Archer over so Archer can make the tough decisions and be the main character, which irritates me, even though it makes sense. As I was debating this throughout the course of this episode, it occurred to me that from a story continuity perspective, it makes perfect sense that the Primate Arboreal Alliance, I don't know what else to call it, the Degra faction, would want to try and separate Archer from the Zindi in general, hence sending Archer back to Enterprise, and with a coded transmission, which has the, the children name in order to try and indicate that this is the message, you know, that's the flag, so that they would be able to know the coordinates and when to go meet them. All of this being done clandestinely and under the under the rug. Why? Because they don't trust the reptilians, they might not trust the insectoids, and, well, there's another issue there too, which we'll get to in a minute. So it does make sense that they would want Archer to be separate and then go and do this thing off, you know, off the record. This also makes sense because they would need to go to Enterprise to try and get some of the evidence that Archer has offered in support of his theory. Well, theory. What they consider to be a theory. His claims. What he is alleging. So while that makes sense and that works, I still probably would have made it so that they'd send Archer back to Enterprise and he's just out. He is so damaged, so brutalized, internal injuries, rib damaged, and he just, and Phlox literally doesn't have the resources or access necessary, you know, the tools to actually heal him properly. So Archer just goes into bed rest, and I would have the rest of the episode focus on this episode's main character. Because this episode is all about Paul. I would embrace that. It, I, I hate to say this, but it feels like Archer is intruding in this episode. And it irritates me even more because it seems for some really good scenes, but it does still feel like an intrusion into Paul's episode, which is kind of irritating. We'll see if Archer intrudes in the next episode as well, because the next episode is Tucker's episode. Anyways, what would you do? Question, what would you, what would you do? Would, would you have Archer out? Would you not focus on T'Pol? Would you restructure it? I mean, there, there's several options here. There's several configurations that would work. I'm curious, as I always am. So... They find out that there's another ship. This is when they luck out like crazy. And they're like, hey, we need to... Uh, they're asking for help. And I just, I found myself laughing. It reminds me of Farscape, actually. It's funny how much of season three of Enterprise reminds me of Farscape. I wonder if that's deliberate. <laughs> hit, hit, hit. No, um, my point is that there's a, there's a great bit where someone is asking the Moya crew for help. And I believe Crichton's exact response is, Really? They're asking us for help? Because <laughs> that's kind of the, the situation here. But, you know, maybe we can help each other trade, you know, work out things. They've been blasted by combat. They've been blasted by anomalies. We can work something out, right? What's interesting is this makes all that Trillium they've had since all the way back in Impulse actually worth a damn. Remember, they've just been hauling the Trillium around. Archer refused to use it for fear of what it would do to T'Pol. <laughs> And so, as a direct consequence, they just have this extremely valuable, very rare ore that they can use for trade going forward. You ever play, uh, like a survival roguelike kind of game, like This War of Mine, or, um, 
FTL might be a good example. And you just luck out early on and you get something valuable and you just sit on it until you can trade it for something you really need later on. Because that's the vibe I get from this. It, it feels very much in that direction. Hell, I suppose this goes back to Oregon Trail if you want to go back there. Or Oregon Trail, whichever one you prefer. Once again, I do want to give special praise to Jolene Blaylock. She absolutely nails everything she needs to in this episode. Now, she's been showing signs of this for some time, and I've been pointing them out if you've been paying attention. And I'm sure you've been paying attention to the episodes and you know, noticing the signs of her kind of going, eh, a little bit. This also has her shaking, and she starts absolutely losing it. We have a quick scene to remind us that Hoshi and Travis still exist. And we have the creepy music during the shower, which then leads to her having the skin pustules from um, Impulse. I keep forgetting the name of the episode. I already referenced it twice today. <laughs> from Impulse, you know, like the zombie Vulcan's head. And so she's she's freaking out, you know, this is all messing up. And then she goes in, and we have an extended scene where I don't have much to talk about. It's There's no dialogue. So she has to carry all of this just on her presentation and how the directors use the camera and how the lighting crew does that stuff. You know, it's all visual presentation. It's all good stuff. I want to share a story, if that's okay with you. Once upon a time, I was not doing great. Um, this was after. Uh, the stint on the streets, but I wasn't doing great because I was still having trouble finding a job, which is just one of the worst feelings, by the way, if I might be so bold. Not the worst. I'd say top 20-ish as far as worst feelings. Not being able to get a job it sucks. The only reason it's only in top 20 is because I felt so much worse. <laughs> but, um, sorry, getting too personal, getting too personal. I was uh, starving. Starving, actual starvation. It's something I've experienced more than once in my life. Now, dehydration's worse. I've been dehydrating to death a couple of times. It's horrific. <laughs> I can't even explain that one. But starving, I can try to explain because I didn't realize I was awake and shaking and desperately making my way to the kitchen until I was already halfway there. It was the middle of the night. I was living with some roommates, uh, one, of, one of whom I'm still in contact with, two of whom I'm hopefully still friends with. I haven't talked to one of them in a while, though. And all three of whom we actually ended up parting on, you know, good circumstances. It was, you know, there's no bad things there. They were good roommates. I hope I was a good roommate. Except for this one time when I just went into the kitchen and, and just stole food and just started eating right there in the kitchen, just manically. There was a desperation to it. I can't even describe properly without just using that word. I had to eat. I was starving. I felt terrible about that, owned up to it, and much later paid that back. But when I, you know, when I finally did luck into a job, this is actually the Arby's job, if you're remembering. But God, that just, that sensation of just, and I'm just literally, I, I can't quite emulate it because I can't force myself to shake the same way, but I'm just, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not shaking, it's vibrating. Your whole being is doing that, though. This is the visible part, the hands. But it's in here. You feel your chest vibrating. You feel like your entire body is just... And you're freaking out the entire time. I had to get that food. The really sad part is it was a bit of bread and some milk. That's all it was. But, God, I was losing it. And so I'm watching DePaul as she's going through this. Now, 
I've never been addicted to anything of, of any substance, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, anything like that. Thankfully, I have managed to dodge that particular bullet. But um, even though what she is going through seems to indicate, you know, a withdrawal, someone who needs their fix, all I can think of is what it felt like to be starving. Because that is how she portrays it. It makes me wonder if the actress has any experience with that in her past, because that's how she portrays it. Anyways, she goes through this whole wonderful scene, and, uh, whew, yeah. They, uh, the dilemma shows up. This is one of the biggest reasons, plot-wise, why they decided to go ahead and ensure that Archer was back on the Enterprise. Because they needed there to be the dilemma. For a dilemma to be properly crafted, you need to limit the options of the crew. If the crew can take a third option, it's not really a dilemma. Even if it's hard to take that third option, the mere fact that it exists prevents it from being a dilemma. At that point, it is merely a threat that needs to be resolved. A dilemma, by definition, is something where you don't have a right answer. By something where there is no correct path to take. It is a choice of wrongs, and you need to decide where you want to pick that. It's one of the reasons Dilemma episodes tend to work so well when it comes to track and fiction in general. So the Dilemma had to be constructed. They have a time and a place to go meet Degra. This is it. The Enterprise is pasted and could be pasted again at any moment if they don't do this. This is, once again, the only card in their hand. They have to get there. They have to honor this. They don't have the ability to communicate that they can't reach it, and they can't reach it. So they need that warp coil. The end. And just like earlier with the outpost on the moon, there's no decision here. This is a simple choice. Archer flat out states, you know, we will give them food. We will give them all of our Trellium D. We will try to compensate these people and help them out so they can survive. But we have to steal their warp coil and effectively strand them without warp drive in, in another star system. Three-year trip. And that's being nice. And that's assuming they manage to get the Trellium D working and get the repairs working and their power reserves last for that long. There is an extremely good chance Archer has just condemned that crew to a slow death. Or a fast one. So that's the dilemma. What do you do? The problem is, in many ways, there really is no choice here. This is Mass Effect 2's The Arrival all over again. You can do the horrible thing, or lose. Pick. This shows how this trilogy is absolutely on the right track. Remember how I made fun of the darkier, edgier moments of we do what we have to, I'll torture you in the airlock if I must. You remember that? Well, I stand by that. Those moments were dumb. This moment is not. This is why I'm willing to accept Archer being back, even though I wish T'Pol was the one to make this decision, and I think this scene would be even more powerful if it was T'Pol making this decision, especially now that she's struggling with the emotions. Whoever's making the decision, the decision is shown the gravitas that it needs to be given. It, it is shown the proper weight that is actually affixed here. They are going to go pirate people who were their friends. Now, I know friends might be overselling it, but these are people that, that they helped and helped them, and they traded, and they parted on good terms. 
And that just adds to that. There's even a bit later where the, you know, Enterprise is approaching and they're, they're hailing them like, hello, can we, can we help you? What's going on? In just such an innocent way that just make, that just twists that knife. We have to attack people who are effectively our allies, at least our temporary allies, who we, who are in a positive interaction with us, who have done nothing wrong, who deserve none of this, because we don't have a frickin' choice. We need that warp coil. It is them or us. <sighs> you remember I mentioned this war of mine earlier? I got some real serious vibes of that game in this episode. By the way, if you haven't played that game, I highly recommend it. Great game. Great game. Horrific. <laughs> not for the not for the faint-hearted. This uh This also is more of a Cisco moment. You know, I I I will do this. I, I don't want to do this. I do not enjoy doing this. I'm gonna do everything in my power to make this as least le less bad as I possibly can. But I have to do this. And this is pushing Archer more into a Cisco territory than the Justice Lord territory he was basically sitting in earlier, or if we're being honest, the Jack Bauer territory. And, well, this also is the kind of thing that adds to the challenge of the situation. Now, one little tidbit, really quick. I love how Phlox knows off the top of his head how many times he is engaged in something he considers unethical in his entire career. Just like that. I can, I can relate with that. I can probably count how many times I've lost my temper off the top of my head. If you, well, not, not off the top of my head, but if you give me a minute. Off the top of my head, I can tell you the last time I lost my temper. Because I keep track of that kind of thing. I know it's not exactly the same severity, but it's the same general concept. It is a mark of shame. Why is Porthos on the ship? Now, I mean, obviously I know why he was on the ship back in 1 and 2. Why is he still here in 3? This is just kind of weird, isn't it? <sighs> Anyways. So, we cut away, and we see the Tutirian woman for the first time. Now, this is funny and interesting. She comes across very much as a founder, if I might be so bold. Superior and dismissive. She, her tone... Her body language is all commanding and all sweeping, and she basically insists on that they just listen to her, and they do what she tells them to. Again, very founder mentality. In other words, she doesn't lead, she tells. Now, there is a distinction there, and it's clear, based on this one scene, there's actually a lot of exposition in this one scene, it's clear that in the past, the Tutarians have just been able to tell do this, do this, do this, do this. This will happen here, this will happen here. And the Zindi have apparently just listened to them in every possible outcome. And it makes sense why. They can just teleport in, you know, and they can appear, and they have the weird voice, and they have the super advanced tech, and they have the future knowledge, all this fun stuff. So it makes sense for why they wouldn't question until they're given a reason to question. And so they do. But the catch here, and this is their mistake, this is the Tatarian's mistake, or the woman in particular's mistake, she doesn't justify, she doesn't explain, she doesn't lead. This is why I made that distinction earlier, because all she does is presume their loyalty like a founder would. A founder wouldn't explain to a Vorta why they're doing such and such, or the necessity of a particular order. They would just insist on their obedience. But the Zindi are not Jem'Hadar. So, instead, they question. 
and all of her platitudes fall short because of how she gives them with this very insulting, dismissive manner. She even flat out says, I will not participate in your... Well, she doesn't say this, but her tone says, I will not participate in your childish games, as she talks about their internecine and her bickering. This then leads to, you know, the two primates. Do you believe her? Do you? Why should we listen to Archer over her? Well, because Archer has offered proof and... I mean, there's other things, too. But it's worth noting that from their perspective, in that moment, the Tutarian woman and Archer are both equally unreliable sources of information. Archer is an enemy who, you know, tried to damage and destroy and, you know, was, was trying to, to, to sabotage the weapon and all this fun stuff. So there's a lot of shadow cast on the light of his uh, allegations. But the Tutarian woman, again, did everything I just referenced, did everything I just talked about. So there's a lot of shadow cast on hers. So we're at equal balance. Both are unreliable. Proof being the one thing that pushes things in Archer's scale makes perfect sense, especially for Degra, a scientist. So how do you challenge crew of the Enterprise? I've said this so many times. You change the definition of victory. You change what victory is. If their goal was just to go and steal the reactor, the, the warp coil, done. It would take them seconds. They already they they say this flat out in the episode. For once, the script actually acknowledges what a transporter is and can do. They don't have any shields to prevent beaming. So bzz, done. Game. Instead, they're gonna have to go dislodge this thing manually because if they just beam it over, they're gonna cripple the other ship's engines. So the definition of victory is minimize losses. This is a brilliant challenge. This is beautiful. This is the kind of thing that, that some great stories could be told about because they have to defeat their enemy while damaging them as little as possible. They need to make sure nobody dies on both sides and they need to make sure that they steal the necessary item while compensating them while not destroying their ability to, to cope or adapt to anything. Think about that. Think about how challenged that would be. Especially since you are holding back constantly. They're not. They're not holding back at all. They're just seeing pirates raiding them. That's brilliant. That's absolutely bloody brilliant. I love it. That's the kind of thing a Superman story could be made of right there. This leads to T'Pol confronting Archer. Now, um, first of all, to Paul is obviously out of her mind, and that's fine. That's actually the point of the scene, is to show how badly she's dealing with her uh, lack of control over her emotions. Her neural pathways being permanently damaged kind of a deal. So she says, we're no different from the pirates. Yes, they are. I hate that argument. It's so surface level. It's so dismissive. People who regularly pirate and raid other people because, eh, survival is a lot different than we need to do everything in our power to try and ensure that we don't damage these people to get this warp coil that we need under these very specific circumstances to go accomplish this very important mission that we don't have time to have another solution for. These are very different circumstances. We are not the same as the pirates. And I hate it when people use that argument, mostly in real life, but it also shows up a lot in fiction. Point number two, slippery slope fallacy. She actually mentions that. It's just, you are beginning to rationalize this, which means you'll just get worse after this. The slippery slope is a concept, it's, uh, but it's almost never applied that way. 
What I, I, I prefer to use the A to Z mentality to explain that, which I'll get to in just a second. The slippery slope fallacy is a form of a logical argument that kind of insists on um, an unending trend. Uh, my favorite example, and I actually looked this up to make sure I had it. My favorite example is if we legalize prostitution, then people will no longer need to get married. So, pe- so the therefore the family uh, unit will cease to exist, which means people's organization with each other as a social construct will cease to exist, which means civilization will crumble. That's a slippery slope fallacy right there. It presumes that it's just going to keep going. And it tries to use that as an argument for why you shouldn't do the very first thing on the top of the step. Now, obviously... There is such a thing as people taking steps and doing that whole thing. That's the A to Z thing. Now, that's my terminology, so forgive me. A to Z is like this. You're at A. Now, Z is way over here. And it's some horrific, terrible thing. If you're at A and you look at Z, you would never do that. But from going from A to B is a lot more reasonable. And going from B to C is a lot more reasonable, and so forth and so on. Now, obviously, this doesn't always work, because, and this is why the, the fallacy is a fallacy, because at some point you can stop. At some point you might trip over a line or get to a point where it's like, whoa, quark. Deep Space Nine is a perfect example of how A to Z philosophy both works and also has its own built-in interrupt, because quark at several points in DS9 hit a line where he was just like, whoa. And it was just one more step past where he already was, but... That step, even though it was a small step, was still a step too far because that was the step that pushed the line for him. So even A to Z does not automatically presume you will go from A all the way to Z. Sense, Mike? Now, I just wanted to mention all this because for once the episode acknowledges that, too often writers seem to presume that the slippery slope is a, is a total fact. That is, if you start doing this, then you will descend into total madness. And, and that just always irritates me, for the same reason it does when people use that argument in real life. But instead, we see that both of these arguments are being said by someone who is unstable and effectively just lashing out. She even apologizes for them and admits that she didn't mean them later. Instead, this scene isn't about the ethics of this. That's already been dealt with in the scene between Phlox and Archer. This scene isn't about the dilemma. That was dealt with in the command center when they debated their options. This scene is about T'Pol. T'Pol is someone who we see... Ah, She goes to the doctor and explains everything, lays it all out for Phlox. Are you going to tell the captain? No, no, this is between you and your doctor. It's a good line, by the way. Funny thing, by the way, little anecdote, patient-doctor confidentiality doesn't quite work the way fiction often portrays it. I know, shocking that fiction would get things wrong. Uh, What I mean by that is, for the most part, yeah, unless you're authorized or have legal justification, like if a court of law, for example, you know, puts in the proper paperwork, then they can pull those confidential records. That's kind of how that works. In some cases, some medical professionals are actually required by law, to violate patient-doctor confidentiality. But that's for specific things. It's usually in the more extremes of categories. Like if if someone flat-out admits that they are actively suicidal and are actively attempting to kill themselves, then that's the kind of thing that they are obligated to report on. Stuff like that, right? So, I just wanted to comment on that. Because Phlox decides that this qualifies as confidentiality. Now, that actually makes sense. I would probably make the same call. Why? Because this is still at the stages of trying to self-handle. She is trying to self-regulate and fix this situation, and she is actively seeking help. 
This is not the time to rat out. This is the time to assist. If she gets worse from this point, that might be the time to rat out and try to seek external intervention. But as of right now, it's all under the hood. To Paul's been... So I have one minor nitpick of this episode, and it actually has nothing to do with the episode itself. It's the same nitpick I had with the Hayes and Reed argument a few episodes ago. You remember that? And that argument is, where was this before? You had how many episodes of filler in this damn season? And it's not that hard to have a line or a scene here or there or in an unrelated episode to help keep an arc going and to help develop it by one more step. That's actually a fairly common trick when it comes to, uh, you know, season-long story arcs or subplots. But instead, the T'Pol thing showed up in Impulse, which was way back towards the beginning of Season 3. And while T'Pol has been awesome since then, there's never really been any hints that she's actually been you know, doing drugs, or that her emotional control has been slipping, with only the exception of the previous episode to this one, when she actually broke into tears and Tucker noticed something was up. That's it. There's no build-up. That's the only that's the only flaw I have. But again, that's not really a flaw of the episode proper, because the episode proper nails it somehow despite not building it up. It feels unearned, I'll admit that, but it is nevertheless a good landing. She is someone who, in some, to some extent or another, has always been pushing the boundaries of what a Vulcan can be. Given that we find out she was eventually supposed to be half Romulan, this does line up. And again, they had that planned out in advance, so that's probably what they had in mind throughout Season 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. But instead, what we see is that she decided to use this as an experiment. Scientific mind, right? All right. Lots of Trellium D is horrifically toxic. That makes sense. What if it wasn't? I mean, salt is toxic, right? Alcohol, you know? So what if we refined it down to the point where it wasn't at a toxic level, but might still allow me to process and ex express these emotions that I have used all of these feelings and, and, and these, these pieces to keep under control for so long? And so she does so. She works with it. She experiments, she tries, and it's implied, we don't see this, of course, it's implied that she has been meticulous about this. Okay, let's try ingestion. Okay, let's try processing in this manner. Maybe if we do it into a gaseous form, maybe if we try some kind of compound that we mix it with something else to dilute it, then we can go ahead and inject it directly and blah, 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 blah. And thus she now has the ability to allow herself to feel things that she otherwise wouldn't. This, of course, leads to the potential consequence here. Now, I don't remember if this is stated as being true going forward. It is mentioned in this episode that her, her pathways may be permanently damaged by what she's already done. In short, that her ability to self-control has been permanently detrimented as a consequence of this. That's what I would do, personally. I don't remember if that's a true thing going forward, so forgive me. Either way... This also helps to show one of the reasons why she has been having so much difficulty with dealing certain specific things. Cough, cough, Sim. Cough, cough, Tucker. Now, that's the big one. That's the only bit of foreshadowing we've really had. And even that would have worked just fine if there was no Trillium D involved. Which, honest thought for a moment, I kind of forgot that Trillium D was involved when I was discussing those episodes, so make of that what you will. To Paul... So we've seen the Archer damage, right? Archer has been damaged by, 
<laughs> literally being the crap beaten out of him, but by being brought down to a low that he didn't think he could deal with. And then having to take the desperate option of trying to do the more difficult thing of trusting his hated enemies. The last desperate gamble. T'Pol has been damaged by virtue of the fact that she no longer has the ability to deal with things. Now that may sound like such a minor thing, but think about what that would mean to a Vulcan in general. And someone like T'Pol and the level of pride she's already distributed or displayed prior to now. Someone like like Spock is actually a perfect example. Spock's pride was always a key and integral part of his character. It's it's something that came up a lot in TOS, something I talked about extensively in Amok Time, which I have no idea when that rumination goes live relative to now, but it's something that's talked about. I've already recorded that episode. To Paul, losing control, that's a big freaking deal to her. Not Not because she chooses to, per se, but because she has actually reached a point of having lost control. That's the interesting part. She mentions how, you know, he's like, when did you realize you were addicted? And she says, two days ago. Because up until then, it had been under control. She still had access to the Trillium. She had the very refined process. Everything was going smoothly and without incident. Everything was under control and therefore entirely except, oh, God, I can't get it. Oh, God, I can't. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. God, I'm so hungry. Please, I need to get it. I need to get it. And at that moment, she realized she was no longer in control. That's also probably the moment where she realized she wasn't in as much control as she thought she was. With that loss, she is now damaged. You know, I actually don't have much to say about the the final fight. It's good stuff. Good action. I was invested. I'm with it. Again, you have to damage your enemy enough without really damaging them, without killing them, without dying yourself. It's, it's, it's a wonderful challenge. And again, reminds me of this war of mine. I do have to say, though, imagine if they didn't have the stun setting on Star Trek. Just picture that for a second. If stunning was not on the table, if all you had was guns or blasters. <laughs> that would be horrible. Ah, very good episode. This is actually, I know you probably don't care. I'm going to do a thing at the end of this show like I do with every Star Trek show. And the this is actually topping it out. This is my individual favorite episode. I usually think of the big three trilogy as one episode for obvious reasons. But if I had to pick, Azadi Prime had the couple of little nitpicks, Daniels. This one doesn't. This one is pure gold. Easily my favorite episode of Enterprise. I am very much looking forward to it so far so far my favorite very much looking forward to your comments your thoughts and the next episode see you around